Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor K. Scott Wong, who is Professor of History at Williams College, where he teaches a variety of courses on Asian American history, American immigration history, history and memory, war and society, and the 60s. He has written numerous articles and is the author of Americans First, Chinese Americans in the Second World War. Welcome, Scott. Hi, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I have to confess, Scott, um, history is probably not something I have studied a lot. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, I, I uh, came to the U.S. in the mid-80s to go to graduate school and, and subsequently became a uh, U.S. citizen. So I am, the, you know, sort of a first generation immigrant uh, to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't really... Um, studied or thought a lot about immigration and immigration history. I know that you have a class uh, at Williams uh, around this. Uh, could we rewind time a little bit, Scott, and, and go back? I know there have been waves of immigration into the U.S., uh, some by choice, some without. Uh, and, um, and, and in many cases, um, there were different reasons and and different ways of treatment for immigrants, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what is what you know? If we are, what is the right point to start? You know, to think about this huge waves of immigration that happened. Okay. Well, I I think there's there's two important things to keep in mind, and the first one is on the immigrant. Yeah side of things right and and i'm a firm believer that the majority of the time people do not want to leave their homes right yeah um they if 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 things were good in their home countries or in their home cities they would stay i mean it's where they grow up it's where your family is it's where your food is it's where your culture is it's where your religion is for some people, for some cultures, it's very important to, um, shall we say, take care of the graves of your ancestors. You know, it's a certain 
obligation. Um, and so, and I, I think in the modern world that has probably become less important for some people as they move around. But I do believe that that people would prefer to stay at home, yeah. you know, and not create a new life somewhere. And then on the Amer and then on this side of the equation, let, let me, let's say the American side. Even though we are a nation of immigrants, or as Walt Whitman called it, a nation of nations, yeah. um, you know, I, I, there's this tension between this desire for pluralism because of immigrants, and at this, and a simultaneous um, desire for homogeneity. You know that we we welcome immigrants from all over the world so long as you get on the same page as everybody else you know <laughs> and, and i think you know to a certain extent that tension has been with us throughout american history and they're both understandable right i mean you know we talk about you know like one of the mottos of america is um out of many one right okay. But that one doesn't necessarily have to mean that everybody acts and believes the same thing, right? Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, some people came to the to the U.S. against their will, certainly enslaved people, mm -hmm. uh, people who were already here, indigenous people, you know, didn't necessarily want all these other people coming. Um and some people came to the U.S. not necessarily because it was the U.S. It was where the jobs were, you right. know. Uh, so the Irish leave because of the potato famine in the 1850s. It's coincidentally, you know, the Industrial Revolution in New England. Hmm. Right? So all these factories are, are need labor and so on. And, and that's the truth, you know, with... Um, agricultural work right and at at various times in our history we we lack people to pick crops and things like that so people are encouraged to come to be agricultural workers right and then sometimes we even bring them in we let them work for a while then then we kick them out you know um and sort so of a demand for labor yeah by immigration right yes uh, labor is, is a huge reason why people come and a and a huge reason why american companies recruit labor you know um from afar and and then the people who are already here you know sometimes you know i'd like to think that you know we welcome new people um I always tell my students, when it comes to food, thank God for immigration. You know? <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if all we ate were, you know, boiled mutton and potatoes, you know? Uh, right? But um, a lot of other people, unfortunately, you know, would, you know, don't like what people uh, bring with them. They bring their food, which I like, but other people don't, right? They also bring their religion. They bring their gender relations, they bring their um, uh, views on on anything, you know, that doesn't always match up with, with um, contemporary American society. And, and so there's always a little bit of tension. And, and yeah. that, but I have a quick question for you. So yeah. historically, when we when we when you look at this um, um, immigration waves, 
you mentioned the demand for labor sort of driving it. Um, but from the American perspective, when, when the immigrants came, was the expectation assimilation? Because, you know, if it was purely labor, it was sort of a temporary expectation, right? Yeah. Well, I think for some, at certain times, it was expected to be temporary. Hmm. You know, I, I don't think people in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s thought that these immigrants were going to be temporary. Yeah. Right. Certainly in the 1950s, when we re, when the government and business recruit Mexicans to come work and even during the Second World War to bring Mexicans in, you know, to to work because other Americans are at war. I think they were hoping that they would be temporary and, and they would go home when no longer needed. And, and that's actually the same for during the Second World War, when men went to war, women went to factories, right? Yeah. And then there was that expectation that once the men came home from war, the women would go home, you know, raise kids and so on. And, you know, a good portion of the female population, once they tasted what it was like to work out of the home, and to make a wage of their own, they didn't necessarily want to go home and be housewives. You know? <laughs> right. And I think that, you know, it's not talked about as much, but I think you you see the seeds of the women's movement there that, that would happen, you know, later. Yeah. And so, um, so the, the, the expectation of becoming a citizen of the country, um, it was different in different times, right? And and uh, I found it fascinating, you know, the, the sort of the criteria that was used in, in different times. Right. Uh, <laughs> do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. You know, I mean, the thing about citizenship is that it, you know, there's, there's a lot of advantages to citizenship, right? Um, you can own land, um, you know, there was a time where um, if you weren't a citizen, you couldn't own land. There was a time when if you were if you were not a citizen, you couldn't own a gun, shall we say. Right. Yeah. But I think one of the big things that's always been in the back of people's minds is that citizenship gives you equal rights to people, but it also gives you the right to vote. Yeah. And, and I think that has been um, a big problem for people who don't want immigrants voting, hmm. right? And it, and it, it, you know, for a while, they certainly, you know, you know, like um, certain groups of Americans didn't want Catholics voting, right? Because they were afraid that the um, Catholics loyalty would be to the Pope and not to the U.S., right? Um, they didn't want Asians voting, you know, because they weren't sure of, of, of their politics or, or their cultural values. I mean, they didn't want women to vote um, until 1920, right. right? You know, regardless of their immigration status, because they didn't think women were capable of understanding politics, you know. And they certainly didn't want emancipated slaves to vote, you know. <laughs> Um, because the one they numbered were, were, you know, they were large in number and, you know, they were, there was a certain fear that they wouldn't vote for, 
for their masters, you know, or their uh, uh, former masters. Yeah, so the, the voting was a sort of a, a very important consideration. And we, we, even now, um, that's what we see, right? This immigration bill that is not yeah. going anywhere uh, is fundamentally driven by that fear, is it? Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, you know, um, I, I honestly believe, and I, I don't want to go into this direction of politics for this, but right now, I, I think the Republican Party wants as few people voting as possible, um, right? Because they're afraid that the vast majority of Americans won't vote for them, right? Um, Republican presidents have not won the popular vote, you know? Donald Trump lost the popular vote twice. Um, I think George Bush lost it the first time. Yeah. Uh, not sure. But, um, you know, they, they don't want a lot of people voting because a lot of their policies just don't match up or, or a lot of their rhetoric doesn't match up. Right, right. And again, historically, um, race and color of the skin were important important criteria for citizens. Yes. Right? yes. You know, they, um, you know, well, it's, you know, see, unfortunately, you know, we are stuck with this concept of race. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that race becomes a matter of skin color. Right. Right. And then everything that gets piled on to race, you know, dark skinned people have certain kind of cultures and so on and so forth. And but Gil, this this may interest you, and I'm and, and perhaps I'm telling you something that you already know. But in you know 1923, you have a very important Supreme Court case in which a South Asian, yeah, um, a Sikh, who was given American citizenship because he had served in the American Army during World War One. But then once, by 1917, um, you know, um, South Asians were uh, restricted from, from entering. And they also tried to limit citizenship to only white people and, and black people. And so when this man, his name was Bhagavat Singh, yeah. Uh, Thin, Mr. Thin. Yeah. And, and when Thin went to the Supreme Court, you know, he said, I'm Caucasian. <laughs> yeah. right? He said, you know, all the scientists say that that's that South Asians are actually Caucasian because of centuries of intermarriage with people from what we now call the Middle East and so right. on. You know? right. And they said to him, they said, well, the, the scientists say that, but look how dark you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, no one would ever consider you Caucasian. And, and, and that sort of put the cap on like, you know, Caucasian equaled white, you yeah. know, um, yeah. you know, and all, of course, all of these terms are fluid and they don't really mean anything anymore. But back then they did. And unfortunately, today they still do. You know. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, Scott, um, I did. Um, there was a program by National Geographic that you can send a saliva sample and and using uh, disease progression, um, you can trace your trace your roots back all the way back to Africa uh -huh. uh, to uh, 50,000 years ago. Right. And uh, in my case, uh, so they, they will also show you a heat map 
of your genes. And before coming to the U.S., um, I had never left India. My family had never left India. Uh, but my heat map has the highest concentrations in Rome, Netherlands, and Spain. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> on my dad's side. Uh, and my, on my mom's side, it's, it's different. Right. Um, and, and so you, you mentioned this idea of race. Um, it, it is, it, there is really no scientific basis for it, um, no. you know, from a genetic perspective. Right. Homo sapiens went through a bottleneck. I think the, the number of Homo sapiens at one point in time was only about 15,000 in the entire world. Uh-huh. Um, and so we have 8.4 billion clones <laughs> right now. Uh, but most of our policies uh, are based on this idea of race, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and we all know that race doesn't really exist. But we're unfortunately stuck with it for now. And, and, and I don't know how to get past it, you know. Yeah. And, and, and when I have students who say, yes, but, you know, race is just a social construct. And that only intellectually that may be true. So I say, well, yeah, it's a social construct, but of grave consequence. Hmm. You know, uh, it's, you know, in, in some ways it's, it's, it's the same as... Um, nationality you know like when i ask my students what nationality are they get confused with race right and, and they wonder and i try to tell them well in some ways nationality depends on who you're a citizen of but you can still call yourself indian or or you know peruvian but you can be an american citizen yeah. uh, but you know it's we're unfortunately stuck with a language that doesn't meet the complexity of, of, of who we are as people, you know? Yeah. And I found it hilarious, Scott. Uh, you, you talked about the South, South Asian uh, Supreme Court case, and there was a, there was a similar one where, with a Japanese uh, person, right? Yes. Right before him. And that was Ozawa. And he said he was white because of his skin tone was so light. You know, and they said, you're not what you 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 may look white, but you're of a race. Yeah, that's ineligible for a citizenship. You know? right. so, so by 1924, Asians are ineligible to citizenship. Hmm. And they're also heavily restricted from uh, immigrating because the 1924 bill said if you can't become a citizen, then you can't immigrate. But that's that wasn't always enforced well, or people learned how to get around that uh, legally or illegally. Yeah. Um, and then there's you know after the Second World War, you know, uh, and, and after you know when Indian independence and and so on, you know, people were allowed in regardless of their country of origin or race because they came in um, as refugees. Hmm. Right. There was some important law in. Was it 1882? Uh, 1882 was the Chinese Exclusion Act. So, so what is the Chinese Exclusion Act? What was the what okay. was the... well the Chinese Exclusion Act at, at at this time? You know, 1882. There's there's a there's a growing anti-Chinese movement in the U.S. Um, a lot of it geared around economic competition, right? So it's it's right it's post-Civil War, uh, 
black people are looking for jobs, white people are looking for work. And the Chinese show up in the 1850s in, in recognizable numbers because of the gold rush and then the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. And um, so 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act did two things. It prohibited uh, laborers from entering the country for 10 years. And it also said that Chinese could never become citizens of the U.S. Oh, and it also said that laborers were not allowed to bring their wives um, and families. See, but merchants could. Uh, so, right. So, so then you have a race and a class issue here, right? So it's like if they're merchants, we'll we'll let them in, but if they're laborers, no. So, it, so which is why. Chinatowns formed, and it's mostly merchants, you know. Yeah, and those are the ones who are allowed in, and and their wives are allowed in, and so they're they're. It takes a long time, but there would eventually be American-born Chinese, mostly in that merchant class. Was it a was it an economic um, decision? Yeah, I, I think it, to me, it's it's a combination of three things. And, and, and even and these words don't always make sense either. Right. But economics, yes, because 1880s, the U.S. is in depression. We're, we're also trying to expand westward. And there's a fear that um, the Chinese will take all the jobs in the West. Right. And then racially, you know, they're not white. So there's a fear that the country will be then flooded with more non-white people. Uh, and then there's culture. You know, they've Chinese were seen as very foreign. You know, they didn't dress the same as other people. They spoke a language which no one could understand. Um, they ate with sticks, you know, um, and they ate weird food. You know. <laughs> uh, and, you know. Ironically, right? They they ate weird food, um, you know, and, and yet they would pioneer agriculture and f commercial fishing and all on the West Coast. And you know, um, as one author put it, there's 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 now more Chinese eateries than all McDonald's, Burger Kings, and Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, combined. Yeah. Right. You know, and. Um, as, as she put it, we have this expression, as American as apple pie, and chances are you've had some kind of Asian food more freak, more recently than you've had a slice of apple pie. You know? <laughs> yeah, but, but the merchant class, uh, they were treated differently, Scott, because they were, they were sort of uh, on the business side, uh, yeah. had higher, higher influence on economics. Yeah, there. Yeah, higher influence on economics, and to be a merchant, you also had to be somewhat literate, right? Mm. And because Chinatown, you know, Chinatowns have always been seen as this isolated area, an exotic area, right? Yeah. But often, you know, Chinatowns were actually multi-ethnic um, and multiracial, and so therefore, merchants had to learn Chinese um, English. Mm. Because they had a mixed clientele, you know. So, and as I said, they had to be somewhat literate in order to take inventory and to make orders. So they probably had some kind of education too. And to make transactions happen. Yeah. So I want to shift gears and go to one of your papers. Uh, okay. On, sure. Uh, conflicting images, contested terrain. Mm -hmm. 
you say ever since Chinese immigrants in America began uh, forming communities in the mid to late 19th century, the residential business and cultural space, generally referred to as Chinatown, has been laid with imagery. These images, you say, largely negative and demeaning, have usually been framed by observers who did not live in Chinatown uh, and uh, who had little connection or uh, to or stake in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get into the, the Chinatowns in America, Chinatown is not an American invention, right? Uh, we have Chinatown all over the world, don't we? Yes, yes. Uh, there are what you want to call, you know, what you might want to call Chinatown. I think in Spanish it's uh, Barrio Chino. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, 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 a, you know, a, a, I don't know what to call, say, a custom or a habit, but, you know, people, people live with their own kind for a while, right? Mm-hmm. So you move to a new country, and especially if there's a lot of people of your kind moving, then you move to what, you know, sociologists might call an ethnic enclave, right? So there's Little Italy's, there's Greek Town, right? Uh, on the West Coast, you have Little Saigon. Now, you, I, I don't know about South Asian communities, whether they're called Little Delis or something. I don't know, <laughs> right? But, you know, it, it's, and, and they formed, they formed for a number of reasons. You know, um, you want to be around people who understand what you're saying. Um, you want to be able to go into a store and buy the clothes that you want or the food that you need or r- religious articles, you know, or, or things. And so there's, you know, there were Japan towns, Chinatowns, but, you know, there's also Germantown. Uh, you know, there's uh, Ukrainian neighborhoods, you know, people, you know, tend to, you know, live around people with, with with whom they are familiar. And in many cases, and I can't speak for other groups, but in many cases, Chinese formed Chinatowns with people that they immigrated with, you know. Um, so therefore they they knew each other. And so they would live around each other. Also, it became very hard to live in other parts of the city. Uh, because if you were Chinese, um, you know, for the longest time, no one wanted you in in an integrated neighborhood. You know? Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. So at least on the surface, I don't know much about this, uh, Scott, at least on the surface, uh, clumping of communities might slow down assimilation. Yes. Um, but then the question is, was assimilation the, the goal? <laughs> I uh-huh. don't know. Uh, so, so do you have a view on that? Yeah, I think assimilation is sometimes more of a, the goal of outside society, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas people within Chinatown or Japan towns, you know, they wanted to assimilate in the such in a way that they could become American, but be Chinese American, you know, and not necessarily have to reject everything that their parents and grandparents had brought with them, right? Now, you know, at at different times in, in history, you know, and certainly individuals, I mean, we all want to fit in in some way, you know, and so if, if for early immigrants, it's easier to fit in, let's say with your, fellow countrymen, 
right? But once you've been here a while and or you immigrate, but your parents move to an all white suburb, Right. It, then you ha- then you have to find a way to fit in. Now, does that necessarily mean assimilate? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you you can still be Hindu. You can still eat Indian food, but you might also become a really good baseball player. <laughs> I, I doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I, uh, although it's funny now, I, I have a number of South Asian and Lebanese American students who are on the squash team. Yeah. You know? <laughs> So they assimilated somewhere along the line. <laughs> but then squash, I, I don't know if squash is popular in India. Well, squash is popular in India. Oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> but, but these images that you describe, uh, scars. Well, this, okay, there's yeah. a lot of towns dangerous, right? Yeah. Uh, it's exotic, it's dangerous. You know, the early times was that, oh, there's opium dens, there's a lot of crime. Um, white women will get captured and sold into white slavery. Uh, uh, you don't know what kind of meat they're serving in the restaurants, you know, and so on. And, you know, most of that had to do with simply because, you know, early Chinese immigrants didn't speak English well. Um, and, and, and maybe they were Buddhist or Taoist. And so they had incense going and, and so on. And, and this was just, you know, odd to Americans. You know. So they had all these images as of this dangerous, exotic place, but they still kept going, you know? <laughs> yeah. And how has it changed? I know that the oldest Chinatown in the world is somewhere in Philippines or something, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, what is the oldest one in the U.S.? Which one is that? Probably San Francisco. San Francisco. That that was that burned down, though, right? And that will be created. Burned down and was rebuilt, and it burned down in 1906 because of the earth with the earthquake. Yeah, yeah. But they rebuilt Chinatown in the same place. This, this, the the government of San Francisco wanted to put Chinatown elsewhere, hmm. um, and the Chinese said, "No, this is where we have lived. This is where we will rebuild." Yeah, yeah. I, I heard a story. Uh, not heard, but I I think I read a story that said. Yeah, so when, when Chinatown in San Francisco burned down, they wanted to essentially get rid of it uh, till they realized that they're going to lose a lot of business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. See, and that's the labor thing, right? Right. Money talks. <laughs> um, and if there's that many places to eat Asian food in the country, then, you know, they may not. Some people may not like Asian food or they may, you know, have, you know, negative feelings about Asian people, but the food is here to stay. <laughs> yeah. And so the negative imagery that you talk about, how has it changed over time last hundred years? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I have to admit that, you know, not living in a Chinatown now since I was a child, it, it's, it's hard for me to say but I still think that many people still do see Chinatowns as um, as foreign to them. And, yeah. and that's simply because of, of that, you know, a lot of people in Chinatowns still speak Chinese. And that's because the one difference about Asian communities is that there's still ongoing immigration, right? right? So that new immigrants will come and continue to speak Chinese while their children and grandchildren move out of Chinatown. 
or the earlier generations move out and they're, they speak only English or they're bilingual, right? But newer immigrants tend to, you know, replenish the population with Chinese speaking people. Now, you don't see that in like, you know, there, there are no little Italy, there might be little Italy's yeah. uh, in certain cities, but Italians don't live there anymore. You know? <laughs> uh, restaurants, but they all live in other parts of the city or out in the suburbs, you know, because yeah. there's no sustained Italian immigration going on. Yeah, I was listening to an interview, Scott, and this, I think she was talking about Boston, Chinatown. And I don't know, I don't know much about it, but she was saying that um, increasingly non-Chinese uh, find the Chinatown or proximity to Chinatown real estate to be very attractive. Right. And so, so they move in and over time, essentially, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the original idea of, of culture and community and all of that disappear. Yeah. Because you don't have the Chinatown anymore, right? And, and unfortunately, many Chinatowns—you know—the people will always live in Chinatown. Yeah. Right? But their economy is still really based sometimes on um, the restaurant business, you know, yeah. and and um, restaurant business and small shops, and unfortunately, sweatshops. Right. You know, and, and that's a part of Chinatown and very and other ethnic um, uh, communities that tourists don't see. And the owners of sweatshops don't want you to see that either. You know, right, right. Sweatshops meaning uh, making things uh, on site. Yeah, clothes, clothes on site. So, yeah. so much of the much of the uh, things that they sell are not imported, they're actually manufactured? Uh, well, I, I think less so now are they making them. It's, I can tell you that um, New York Chinatown, a lot of the sweatshops closed after 9-11. Yeah. Right? I mean, a lot of Chinatown closed after 9-11 because that whole area of Manhattan was closed off. Right? So a lot of the um, garment industry, the sweatshops in, in, in which mostly women sewed by the piece, they all shut down. Right. 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 And, and nowadays, you know, we offshore all of our uh, clothing almost, you know, um, it, it may say made in America, but it's made in American Samoa um, or something. But, you know, you can even go to L.L. Bean, which used to be only American made. And now their things are made in Vietnam and all over the place. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what is the perception in China, Scott, about Chinatowns? In China. Hmm. I have to be honest with you. I don't know about contemporary yeah. China. I would think that people, you know, affluent Chinese, let's say from Shanghai, might buy property in Chinatown, but they wouldn't mm -hmm. live there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for a business. For a right. business. That's an investment, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so so I guess increasingly, would it be correct in saying uh, the original idea was more community and culture and perhaps language um, allowing you to sort of mix with uh, folks who can understand you. Uh, but would it be correct in saying increasingly it's about business? It's yeah. about 
economics. Yeah, I, it's about business or for new immigrants, it's um, a stepping stone. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's a place to move into, get settled in America, sort of maybe open a restaurant, you know, or work at a restaurant, um, make do in order to um, provide a better life for your children, mm. right? And to send them to college so that they don't have to live in Chinatown. Right. Right. Or, or the parents themselves will eventually save up the money that they make in their restaurant and buy a house in the suburbs. You know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who just don't want to live in the city. Hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 not the healthiest place to live, you know, and so on. Yeah. Although uh, the overall demographics in the U.S., there has been a shift to the city from the suburbs. Uh, hmm. I, I think COVID-19 might have upended that, but. Um, we look at last uh, 10, 20 years, I think the move has been toward the city, right? That's possible too. I, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons, um, which I'm not an expert on at all. Um, some people get bored with suburb life. <laughs> um, some people like the hustle and bustle of the city. There's certainly more jobs in the city. It's uh, also the young people. They, they yeah. seem to be, there is a sort of a demographic shift in the city. Right. Yeah. yeah. It'd be interesting to see what, you know, like I, I think young, you know, like let's say you're a couple of years, you're graduating college and you get a job in Boston or New York or Philadelphia. You know, it, it's an exciting time of your life, right? Uh, to live in the city and do city things. Um, is that what you're going to do when you have three kids? It's hard to say. Yeah. It gets expensive. It's very expensive, yes. And then the school systems, you know, and, and, and all of that that you have to deal with. Right. But there hasn't been any move to sort of relocate Chinatowns away from the city into the suburbs, right? Not, no. I, yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, I have to admit that I've not been to New York City in quite a while. And I'm only used to the original Chinatown that was in Manhattan. Yeah. Right. And so I, I'm under, I understand that there's like a, Flushing Queens Chinatown. There's a Brooklyn Chinatown. You know, um, so there's new Chinatowns because there's always new Chinese. <laughs> right. right, excellent. So we, we'll take a quick break, Scott. When we come back, we'll talk about your other paper, the okay. Boston Raid. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, Scott. Uh, We're talking about immigration, immigration to the U.S., different waves of immigration that happened over the last 200, 250 years, and uh, different criteria that was used for uh, awarding citizenships. Um, And and then we were talking about uh, this phenomenon, Chinatown, which is not necessarily an American phenomenon, but it's worldwide. And how Chinatown's uh, sort of the intent, uh, original intent of the Chinatown, perhaps it's changing now. You have another paper 
this is uh, about a specific incident. It's about a 1903 Boston Chinatown raid. You say the combined police and immigration raid on Boston Chinatown in 1903 is fairly well known among scholars of Chinese American history. It's often cited as an example of continued police harassment of the community well after the passage of the original Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. We talked a bit about that. So this was sort of an enforcement act uh, in Boston Chinatown? Uh, yeah, what happened, and if I can take the time to sort of yes. explain how I've explored this, you know, a, a number of people had talked about this raid and that people had, that the police and what I guess was then, I don't know if it was called the INS yet, but the feds, <laughs> yeah. you know, they raided Chinatown to see if there were people who were illegals, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what happened was, was that, you know, some people listed the raid as happening in 1902, some people said it was 1904, and some people said it was 1903. And I simply wanted to mention it in my uh, dissertation. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was determined to get the right year. Okay? <laughs> so, so what I did was I ordered on microfilm um, the Boston Globe and the, and the Boston Herald. Yeah. And I went through it them quickly um, to look for the raid. And it wasn't in 1902, and it wasn't in 1904, but I, indeed I found it in 1903. October, October 12, it says here, 1903. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I found the raid, but then something told me, well, go back a couple weeks before the raid. Let's just see what's going on in Boston. <laughs> and that's when I just find out that there's – a murder that takes place. There's like between two competing factions in Chinatown, right? Yeah. And, and there's a murder and then there's going to be a funeral. And so the police, I think, you know, the way I re read this was that the police said, well, there's going to be a funeral. What a great time to round up as many illegal Chinese as we can. Right. So, indeed, they go and raid Chinatown. They go to the restaurants and they go to various places the night of the funeral, <laughs> right? And they arrest anyone because in 1902, um, the government had passed um, an extension of the um, Exclusion Act. See, ex the Exclusion Act was 1882, supposedly for 10 years. Yeah. Well, it gets renewed in 1893. Okay. Yeah. And then it gets renewed again in 1902. Right. Yeah. And so in 1903, they say, well, there's still all these illegal Chinese. Let's have a raid and round them up. So they round all these people up and then they then and they put them in jail and they come to realize that. Well, actually, a lot of these people, some of them are American born, so we can't arrest them. Um, and they actually do have their correct documents, but they don't carry them on them. Right. Yeah. And it would be like you and I having to carry our our passports all the time. Right. right. And, you know, most people didn't. I don't carry my passport because I don't want to lose it. Right. <laughs> And so the Chinese didn't want to carry their legal papers because they didn't want to lose them either. But because they didn't have them, 
they got arrested. And so what I found fascinating for me was that as I was reading through the newspaper accounts of both the murder and then the raid was the aftermath of um, uh, there's a couple cases in the newspapers in which Irish women go to bail out their Chinese husbands, <laughs> right? And so, and so I said, oh, well, this is fascinating, right? Because and what was fascinating to me about it is because although of a different generation, um, my mother, who was born in 1925 in Philadelphia, Chinatown, Eventually, three of her brothers will marry Irish women, you know, Irish-American women. Right? Yeah. And so I said, wow, so that's in Philadelphia. I know this is going on in the 20s. And here in 1903, this is going on in Boston. Uh, and then I have a friend who wrote about um, Irish-Chinese marriages in New York City, uh, Chinatown as well. So then I, I was, you know, that was one thing I was interested in was you know, to show that Chinatowns were not purely Chinese, <laughs> but that there was interracial marriage going on at this time. Um, and, and I didn't venture into why, because I don't know why. Um, I mean, I have my ideas about it. I think one is that um, Irish were, were the one group that slightly more women than men immigrated. Yeah. Right. And then Chinese not allowed to bring their wives or bring women um, or they were single men and there were no other Chinese women around. Um, you know, they looking for companionship um, and they're all living in the same area. They bump into each other and they eventually form relationships and some get married. You know? mm -hmm. um, there, there was no sort of citizenship advantages. Uh not necessarily, I guess if, no, because men would not derive their citizenship from their wives. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, and, yeah. and I still believe that um, an ulterior motive of restricting um, marriages for Chinese was to cut down on American-born Chinese. Hmm. That they didn't want them to have the vote. Yeah, I, I remember... Uh, maybe it was in your talk, um, if I understood it correctly. If you if you are a woman um, and you you have American citizenship, and if you married uh, somebody who does not have American citizenship, you you lose yours. Yes, and that that would be in the 1930s. In the 1930s, yeah, the Cable Act. Right. Or yeah, I think that's the Cable Act in the 30s. I think. Um, and that's stated that if an American woman who was a citizen married someone who was ineligible to become a citizen, yeah. she would lose her citizenship. But if the, and if the marriage was terminated by death or divorce, a white woman could reapply for her citizenship. Hmm. But the Chinese woman would fall back into, into that category of being ineligible for a citizenship. <laughs> Right, right. And so this was a, so the, the paper Boston Herald uh, says that over 300 Chinamen arrested in a big roundup by police. So so this was a sort of big arrest. Um, it says uh, that the bail was set at 500 bucks. Seems like at 500 bucks, not many can afford in 1903, 500 bucks, I would imagine, right? Right, yeah. 
And, and I think only 50 of them were found to be illegal. Only 50 out of 300, yeah. yeah. And I just checked my phone. The Cable Act is actually um, 1922. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so... Um, so in addition, so the, we know the motivation for the raid. We know sort of the outcomes of the of the raid. Did this sort of start um, a, a series of this type of stuff going on? I, I'm. Uh, it did sounds a bit like the sanctuary city uh-huh. issue that we we run into now, right? It just sounds. Yeah, like- yeah. There were other raids that followed this, but not as big. And I think um, there was one in Pittsburgh. Uh, there may have been one in Detroit, but I'm not sure. But there were other raids, but none of them that large, I don't think. Yeah. And when was the Exclusionary Act came to an end? 1943. 1943. Wow. Okay. <laughs> because the U.S. and China are allies in the war. Right. Right. And it was it became increasingly difficult to tell the Chinese they couldn't come to the U.S., even though we were allies. Right. And the Japanese were using exclusion as a propaganda tool. Right. Mm -hmm. The Japanese were, you know, like when they would drop leaflets over China or they would broadcast propaganda radio, you know, they would say, come on now, you uh, Chinese, how how can you be allies with America when they don't even let you go to their own their uh, country, right? Yeah. You can join us. And there were some American politicians who were naive enough to believe that the Chinese might change sides, you know, mm-hmm. um, not sort of taking into account that the Chinese by the 1930s, there was no way that they were going to join Japan, you know, Um because of the atrocities that uh, the Japanese had um, uh, committed. But it also, what's also interesting, too, about the, the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act, much, most of the public speaking and the publicity were not done by Chinese-Americans, but by prominent white people, hmm. such as Pearl Buck. Yeah. Right? And, and that was a strategy of saying, like, let us do it so that you don't look like you're complaining. <laughs> Yeah, so so it sounds like Scott, we need a war to end. <laughs> That's right. To, to end racism, right? Uh, and so, so in conclusion, I want to. I, I I don't obviously don't want to go into politics, but I want to get your sort of um, at least intuition. Where, where do you think we are today? You know, uh, it appeared to me uh, we had a president who seems to advocate systemic racism just very recently half the country voted for him. Uh, Do you think we have moved on or are we sort of circling around the same ideas? You know, that's a good question. I spoke earlier today about this. Um, I, you know, we have definitely moved, you know, race relations have in many ways certainly improved. Right. Um, I think the former president and COVID uh, made us all take a step back because of his anti-Asian rhetoric and blaming China for the, the pandemic. And there's been an uptick in anti-Asian violence. Yeah. Right. But I don't think, 
and I said this earlier, I'm not sure if we would be speaking so much about anti-Asian violence if it wasn't for the death of George Floyd, hmm. right? The fact that anti-Black violence had reached a point where people were so obviously being killed right. you know, on videotape, on TV, that when the Chinese get attacked in New York City because of COVID, that news story is going to get picked up, you know. But I, I am confident. I will, let's put it this way: I fully acknowledge that we have, you know, a a, a racist past and present and probably future. Yeah. Right. But it has certainly things have come a long way, and I don't want to sound naive about that. But you know. People of different races are allowed to marry each other. Right? <laughs> uh, it may not be approved by everybody, but and it it took till 1967 for that to become the law of the land that people of other races could marry each other. Yeah. Um, I know this may sound totally naive, uh, but I watch enough TV that I am still struck by the amount of mixed race couples in commercials and in as characters in TV shows, the same as I'm struck by how many, although they don't make a point about it, but it's obvious that there are gay and lesbian couples in commercials, you know, now, you know, whether we're going to gauge racial progress by representation in commercials um, is a pretty, um, shallow way of looking at it perhaps but the fact that the imagery is there yeah is quite different than in the past you know it's a it's a measurement it, so one thing i worry about scott i don't know if you agree with this is that uh obviously you know so the the african-american um violent uh, the the, the uh, police violence against them yeah issues that uh, we we ran into with uh, george floyd's death and so on uh, it showcases the issue, but I wonder if it also desensitizes. It, when, you, when you see more, I, I wonder if you are getting desensitized to the issue. Do yeah. you have a view on that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think that um, if as, as more African-Americans or more people of color are either brutalized by the police or by other citizens yeah. that we do become desensitized. I mean, look how many fellow Americans we have lost to COVID. Yeah. Right. Over a half a million. And yet it's so hard for Americans to stop and, and mourn that, mm. you know, like I individuals mourn their losses, but we as a country haven't yet like taken the time to stop and say, oh, my God, look what happened to us. You know, yeah. instead, we go to look for someone to blame or we get upset because we have to wear a mask, you know, <laughs> and, and then you have have idiots in Congress who think wearing a mask is similar to the Holocaust. You know, I mean, like, yeah. well, what do you say to that? <laughs> so, yeah, we are desensitized, you know, in some ways, like, oh, it's just another killing. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I want to close with this. Um, I, I, I don't know the exact quote, but a, a, a former presidential candidate said something like, 
you know, there is no Native American culture. Oh, yes. In the U.S. culture, right? It's, right. it's very symptomatic of, I believe, how people think, right? Most, yeah. most, most people don't say things like that. But sometimes right. it comes out. And so, um, so when things like that come out, you, you, have to, you have to wonder if, you know, the, the issue exists in yeah. the system, you know, it's just sleeping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it is. You know, and, and I'm not, you know, I, I, I know what you're talking, the guy you're talking about. Yeah. I think, you know, I, he just, I guess he thinks, you know, the epitome of culture are like big cities like Paris or something, you know, mm. or New York City, you know. And, and I mean, at that time, you know, Native American culture, when Columbus gets here, no, there's no Florence. There's no Venice here. <laughs> right. But, yeah. but there is a rich culture just happening in a different way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, in my view, it remains to be seen. Um, most people don't really have time uh, to think about these issues. Mm -hmm. um, but I used to say, uh, and uh, I was completely wrong on this, Scott. I used to say there is no point looking back. History is not really going to tell us much about how to design the future. But that is not true anymore. Right? That is not. I know that it's not true. Um, mm -hmm. The last ten years have been, you know, really eye-opening in many ways. Actually. Yeah. No, it's true. I, I I think for some people there is no history. There is no past. There's nothing to learn from. We just keep moving forward. You know. And then, unfortunately, there are the people who are the obvious opposite who want everything to be like it used to be or what they think it used to be, you yeah. know. Um, there's a historian, David Blight, who teaches at Yale, and he says, you know, Americans just, they want to hear the same old song over and over again the same way they've always heard it. <laughs> you know, they don't want a new version of that same song, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, it's nostalgic, maybe. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Scott. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me, Gil. Thank you. And take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.